Twelve Years a Slave, Solomon Northup, Chapter 20. Faithful to his word, the day before Christmas, just at nightfall, Bass came riding into the yard. How are you, said Epps, shaking him by the hand. Glad to see you. He would not have been very glad had he known the object of his errand. Quite well, quite well, answered Bass. Had some business out on the bayou and concluded to call and see you and stay overnight. Epps ordered one of the slaves to take charge of his horse, and with much talk and laughter they passed into the house together. Not, however, until Bass had looked at me significantly, as much as to say, Keep dark, we understand each other. It was ten o'clock at night before the labors of the day were performed when I entered the cabin. At that time Uncle Abram and Bob occupied it with me. I lay down upon my board and feigned I was asleep. When my companions had fallen into a profound slumber, I moved stealthily out of the door and watched and listened attentively for some sign or sound from Bass. There I stood until long after midnight, but nothing could be seen or heard. As I suspected, he dared not leave the house through fear of exciting the suspicion of some of the family. I judged correctly he'd rise earlier than was his custom and take the opportunity of seeing me before Epps was up. Accordingly, I aroused Uncle Abram an hour sooner than usual and sent him into the house to build a fire, which at that season of the year is a part of Uncle Abram's duties. I also gave Bob a violent shake and asked him if he intended to sleep till noon, saying Master would be up before the mules were fed. He knew right well the consequence that would follow such an event, and jumping to his feet was at the horse pasture in a twinkling. Presently, when both were gone, Bass slipped into the cabin. No letter yet, Platt, he said. The announcement fell upon my heart like lead. Oh, do write again, Mr. Bass, I cried. I'll give you the names of a great many I know. Surely they're not all dead. Surely someone will pity me. No use, Bass replied. No use. I've made up my mind to that. I fear the Marksville postmaster will mistrust something. I've inquired so often at his office. Too uncertain, too dangerous. Then it's all over, I exclaimed. Oh, my God, how can I end my days here? You're not going to end them here, he said, unless you die very soon. I've thought this matter all over and have come to a determination. There are more ways than one to manage this business and a better and surer way than writing letters. I've a job or two on hand which can be completed by March or April. By that time, I shall have a considerable sum of money. And then, Platt, I'm going to Saratoga myself. I could scarcely credit my own senses as the words fell from his lips, but he assured me, in a manner that left no doubt of the sincerity of his intention, that if his life was spared until spring, he should certainly undertake the journey. I've lived in this region long enough, he continued. I may as well be in one place as another. For a long time I've been thinking of going back once more to the place where I was born. I'm tired of slavery as well as you. If I can succeed in getting you away from here, it'll be a good act that I shall like to think of all my life. And I shall succeed, Platt. I'm bound to do it. Now, let me tell you what I want. Epps will be up soon, and it won't do to be caught here. Think of a great many men at Saratoga and Sandy Hill and in that neighborhood who once knew you. 
I shall make excuse to come here again in the course of the winter when I'll write down their names. I'll then know who to call on when I go north. Think of all you can. Cheer up. Don't be discouraged. I'm with you, life or death. Goodbye. God bless you. And saying this, he left the cabin quickly and entered the great house. It was Christmas morning, the happiest day in the whole year for the slave. That morning, he needn't hurry to the field with his gourd and cotton bag. Happiness sparkled in the eyes and overspread the countenances of all. The time of feasting and dancing had come. The cane and cotton fields were deserted. That day, the clean dress was to be donned, the red ribbon displayed. There were to be reunions and joy and laughter and hurrying to and fro. It was to be a day of liberty among the children of slavery. Wherefore, they were happy and rejoiced. After breakfast, Epps and Bass sauntered about the yard, conversing upon the price of cotton and various other topics. Where do your niggers hold Christmas? Bass inquired. Platt is going to Tanner's today. His fiddle is in great demand. They want him at Marshall's Monday, and Miss Mary McCoy, on the old Norwin plantation, writes me a note that she wants him to play for her niggers Tuesday. He is rather a smart boy, ain't he? said Bass. Come here, Platt, he added, looking at me as I walked up to them, as if he'd never thought before to take any special notice of me. Yes, replied Epps, taking hold of my arm and feeling it. There isn't a bad joint in him. There ain't a boy in the bayou worth more than he is. Perfectly sound and no bad tricks. Damn him, he isn't like other niggers. Doesn't look like him. Don't act like him. I was offered $1,700 for him last week. And didn't take it? Bass inquired with an air of surprise. Take it? No. Devilish clear of it. Why, he's a regular genius. Can make a plow beam wagon tongue. Anything as well as you can. Marshall wanted to put up one of his niggers again him and raffle for them, but I told him I'd see the devil have him first. I don't see anything remarkable about him, Bass observed. Well, just feel him now, Epps rejoined. You don't see a boy very often put together any closer than he is. He's a thin-skinned cuss and won't bear as much whipping as some, but he's got the muscle in him, and no mistake. Bass felt of me, turned me round, and made a thorough examination, Epps all the while dwelling on my good points. But his visitor seemed to take but little interest finally in the subject, and consequently it was dropped. Bass soon departed, giving me another sly look of recognition and significance as he trotted out the yard. When he was gone, I obtained a pass and started for Tanner's. Not Peter Tanner's, of whom mention was previously made, but a relative of his. I played during the day and most of the night, spending the next day, Sunday, in my cabin. Monday, I crossed the bayou to Douglas Marshall's, all Epps' slaves accompanying me, and on Tuesday went to the old Norwood place, which is the third plantation above Marshall's, on the same side of the water. This estate's now owned by Miss Mary McCoy, a lovely girl some twenty years of age. She's the beauty and the glory of Bayou Boeuf. She owns about a hundred working hands, besides a great many house servants, yard boys, and young children. Her brother-in-law, who resides on the adjoining estate, is her general agent. She's beloved by all her slaves, and good reason indeed have they to be thankful that they've fallen into such gentle hands. Nowhere on the bayou are there such feasts, such merrymaking, 
as at young Madame McCoy's. Thither, more than to any other place, do the old and the young for miles around love to repair in the time of the Christmas holidays. For nowhere else can they find such delicious repasts, nowhere else can they hear a voice speaking to them so pleasantly. No one is so well beloved, no one fills so large a space in the hearts of a thousand slaves as young Madame McCoy, the orphan mistress of the old Norwood estate. On my arrival at her place, I found two or three hundred had assembled. The table was prepared in a long building, which she directed expressly for her slaves to dance in. It was covered with every variety of food the country afforded, and was pronounced by general acclamation to be the rarest of dinners. Roast turkey, pig, chicken, duck, and all kinds of meat, baked, boiled, and broiled, formed a line the whole length of the extended table while the vacant spaces were filled with tarts, jellies, and frosted cake, and pastry of many kinds. The young mistress walked around the table, smiling and saying a kind word to each one, and seemed to enjoy the scene exceedingly. When the dinner was over, the tables were removed to make room for the dancers. I tuned my violin and struck up a lively air. While some joined in a nimble reel, others patted and sang their simple but melodious songs, filling the great room with music mingled with the sound of human voices and the clatter of many feet. In the evening the mistress returned and stood in the door a long time looking at us. She was magnificently arrayed. Her dark hair and eyes contrasted strongly with her clear and delicate complexion. Her form was slender but commanding, and her movement was a combination of unaffected dignity and grace. As she stood there, clad in her rich apparel, her face animated with pleasure, I thought I had never looked upon a human being half so beautiful. I dwell with delight upon the description of this fair and gentle lady, not only because she inspired me with emotions of gratitude and admiration, but because I would have the reader understand that all slave owners on Bayou Boeuf are not like Epps, or Tibeats, or Jim Burns. Occasionally can be found, rarely it may be, Indeed, a good man like William Ford, or an angel of kindness like young Mistress McCoy. Tuesday concluded the three holidays Epps yearly allowed us. On my way home, Wednesday morning, while passing the plantation of William Pierce, that gentleman hailed me, saying he'd received a line from Epps brought down by William Varnell, permitting him to detain me for the purpose of playing for his slaves that night. It was the last time I was destined to witness a slave dance on the shores of Bayou Boeuf. The party at Pierce's continued their jollification until broad daylight when I returned to my master's house, somewhat wearied with the loss of rest, but rejoicing in the possession of numerous bits and picayunes, which the whites, who were pleased with my musical performances, had contributed. On Saturday morning, for the first time in years, I overslept myself. I was frightened on coming out of the cabin to find the slaves were already in the field. They'd preceded me some fifteen minutes. Leaving my dinner and water gourd, I hurried after them as fast as I could move. It was not yet sunrise, but Epps was on the piazza as I left the hut, and cried out to me that it was a pretty time of day to be getting up. By extra exertion, my row was up when he came out after breakfast. This, however, was no excuse for the offense of oversleeping. Bidding me strip and lie down, he gave me ten or fifteen lashes, at the conclusion of which he inquired if I thought 
After that, I could get up sometime in the morning. I expressed myself quite positively that I could, and with that stinging back pain, went about my work. The following day, Sunday, my thoughts were upon Bass, and the probabilities and hopes which hung upon his action and determination. I considered the uncertainty of life, that if it should be the will of God that he should die, my prospect of deliverance and all expectation of happiness in this world would be wholly ended and destroyed. My sore back, perhaps, did not have a tendency to render me unusually cheerful. I felt downhearted and unhappy all day long, and when I laid down upon the hard board at night, my heart was oppressed with such a load of grief, it seemed that it must break. Monday morning, the 3rd of January, 1853, we were in the field betimes. It was a raw, cold morning, such as is unusual in that region. I was in advance, Uncle Abram next to me, behind him Bob, Patsy, and Wiley, with our cotton bags about our necks. Epps happened, a rare thing indeed, to come out that morning without his whip. He swore in a manner that would shame a pirate that we were doing nothing. Bob ventured to say that his fingers were so numb with cold he couldn't pick fast. Epps cursed himself for not having brought his rawhide, and declared that when he came out again he'd warm us well. Yes, he would make us all hotter than that fiery realm in which I'm sometimes compelled to believe he will eventually reside himself. With these fervent expressions, he left us. When out of hearing, we commenced talking to each other, saying how hard it was to be compelled to keep up our tasks with numb fingers, how unreasonable master was, and speaking of him generally in no flattering terms. Our conversation was interrupted by a carriage passing rapidly toward the house. Looking up, we saw two men approaching us through the cotton field. Having now brought down this narrative to the last hour I was to spend on Bayou Boeuf, having gotten through my last cotton picking, and about to bid Master Epps farewell, I must beg the reader to go back with me to the month of August, to follow Bass's letter on its long journey to Saratoga, to learn the effect it produced, and that, while I was repining and despairing in the slave hut of Edwin Epps, through the friendship of Bass and the goodness of Providence, all things were working together for my deliverance. Chapter 21 I am indebted to Mr. Henry B. Northup and others for many of the particulars contained in this chapter. The letter written by Bass, directed to Parker and Perry, and which was deposited in the post office in Marksville on the 15th day of August, 1852, arrived at Saratoga in the early part of September. Some time previous to this, Anne had removed to Glens Falls, Warren County, where she had charge of the kitchen in Carpenter's Hotel. She kept house, however, lodging with our children, and was only absent from them during such time as the discharge of her duties in the hotel required. Messrs. Parker and Perry, on receipt of the letter, forwarded it immediately to Anne. On reading it, the children were all excitement, and without delay hastened to the neighboring village of Sandy Hill to consult Henry B. Northup, and obtain his advice and assistance in the matter. Upon examination, that gentleman found among the statutes of the state an act providing for the recovery of free citizens from slavery. It was passed May 14, 1840, and is entitled, An Act More Effectually to Protect the Free Citizens of This State from being kidnapped or reduced to slavery. 
it provides that it shall be the duty of the governor, upon the receipt of satisfactory information, that any free citizen or inhabitant of this state is wrongfully held in another state or territory of the United States upon the allegation or pretense that such person is a slave or by color of any usage or rule of law is deemed or taken to be a slave, to take such measures to procure the restoration of such person to liberty as he shall deem necessary. And to that end, he is authorized to appoint and employ an agent and directed to furnish him with such credentials and instructions as will be likely to accomplish the object of his appointment. It requires the agent so appointed to proceed to collect the proper proof to establish the right of such person to his freedom, to perform such journeys, take such measures, institute such legal proceedings, etc., as may be necessary to return such person to this state, and charges all expenses incurred in carrying the act into effect upon monies not otherwise appropriated in the Treasury. It was necessary to establish two facts to the satisfaction of the governor. First, that I was a free citizen of New York, and secondly, that I was wrongfully held in bondage. As to the first point, there was no difficulty, all the older inhabitants in the vicinity being ready to testify to it. The second point rested entirely upon the letter to Parker and Perry, written in an unknown hand, and upon the letter penned on board the Brig Orleans, which unfortunately had been mislaid or lost. A memorial was prepared, directed to His Excellency Governor Hunt, setting forth her marriage, my departure to Washington City, the receipt of the letters, that I was a free citizen and such other facts as were deemed important, and was signed and verified by Anne. Accompanying this memorial were several affidavits of prominent citizens of Sandy Hill and Fort Edward, corroborating fully the statements it contained, and also a request of several well-known gentlemen to the governor that Henry B. Northup be appointed agent under the Legislative Act. On reading the memorial and affidavits, His Excellency took a lively interest in the matter, and on the 23rd day of November, 1852, under the seal of the state, constituted, appointed, and employed Henry B. Northup Esquire, an agent with full power to effect my restoration, and to take such measures as would be most likely to accomplish it, and instructing him to proceed to Louisiana with all convenient dispatch. The pressing nature of Mr. Northup's professional and political engagements delayed his departure until December. On the 14th day of that month, he left Sandy Hill and proceeded to Washington. The Honorable Pierre Soul, Senator in Congress from Louisiana, Honorable Mr. Conrad, Secretary of War, and Judge Nelson of the Supreme Court of the United States, upon hearing a statement of the facts and examining his commission and certified copies of the memorial and affidavits, furnished him with open letters to gentlemen in Louisiana strongly urging their assistance in accomplishing the object of his appointment. Senator Sewell especially interested himself in the matter, insisting in forcible language that it was the duty and interest of every planter in his state to aid in restoring me to freedom, and trusted the sentiments of honor and justice in the bosom of every citizen of the Commonwealth would enlist him at once in my behalf. Having obtained these valuable letters, Mr. Northup returned to Baltimore and proceeded from thence to Pittsburgh. 
It was his original intention, under advice of friends at Washington, to go directly to New Orleans and consult the authorities of that city. Providentially, however, on arriving at the mouth of Red River, he changed his mind. Had he continued on, he would not have met with Bass, in which case the search for me would probably have been fruitless. Taking passage on the first steamer that arrived, he pursued his journey up Red River, a sluggish, winding stream flowing through a vast region of primitive forests and impenetrable swamps, almost wholly destitute of inhabitants. About nine o'clock in the forenoon, January 1st, 1853, he left the steamboat at Marksville and proceeded directly to Marksville Courthouse, a small village four miles in the interior. From the fact that the letter to Messrs. Parker and Perry was postmarked at Marksville, it was supposed by him that I was in that place or its immediate vicinity. On reaching this town, he at once laid his business before the Honorable John P. Waddill, a legal gentleman of distinction and a man of fine genius and most noble impulses. After reading the letters and documents presented him, and listening to a representation of the circumstances under which I had been carried away into captivity, Mr. Waddill at once proffered his services and entered into the affair with great zeal and earnestness. He, in common with others of like elevated character, looked upon the kidnapper with abhorrence. The title of his fellow parishioners and clients to the property which constituted the larger proportion of their wealth not only depended upon the good faith in which slave sales were transacted, but he was a man in whose honorable heart emotions of indignation were aroused by such an instance of injustice. Marksville, although occupying a prominent position and standing out in impressive italics on the map of Louisiana, is in fact but a small and insignificant hamlet. Aside from the tavern, kept by a jolly and generous Boniface, the courthouse, inhabited by lawless cows and swine in the seasons of vacation, and a high gallows with its dissevered rope dangling in the air, there's little to attract the attention of the stranger. Solomon Northup was a name Mr. Waddill had never heard, but he was confident that if there was a slave bearing that appellation in Marksville or vicinity, his black boy Tom would know him. Tom was accordingly called, but in all his extensive circle of acquaintances, there was no such personage. The letter to Parker and Perry was dated at Bayou Boeuf. At this place, therefore, the conclusion was, I must be sought. But here a difficulty suggested itself, of a very grave character indeed. Bayou Boeuf, at its nearest point, was 23 miles distant, and was the name applied to the section of country extending between 50 and 100 miles on both sides of that stream. Thousands and thousands of slaves resided upon its shores, the remarkable richness and fertility of the soil having attracted thither a great number of planters. The information in the letter was so vague and indefinite as to render it difficult to conclude upon any specific course of proceeding. It was finally determined, however, as the only plan that presented any prospect of success, that Northup and the brother of Wadil, a student in the office of the latter, should repair to the bayou, and traveling up one side and down the other its whole length, inquire at each plantation for me. Mr. Wadil tendered the use of his carriage, and it was definitely arranged that they should start upon the excursion early Monday morning. It'll be seen at once that this course, in all probability, would have resulted unsuccessfully. 
it would have been impossible for them to have gone into the fields and examined all the gangs at work. They were not aware that I was known only as Platt, and had they inquired of Epps himself, he would have stated truly that he knew nothing of Solomon Northup. The arrangement being adopted, however, there was nothing further to be done until Sunday had elapsed. The conversation between Messrs. Northup and Wadil, in the course of the afternoon, turned upon New York politics. I can scarcely comprehend the nice distinction and shades of political parties in your state, observed Mr. Wadil. I read of soft shells and hard shells, hunkers and barn burners, woolly heads and silver grays, and am unable to understand the precise difference between them. Pray, what is it? Mr. Northup, refilling his pipe, entered into quite an elaborate narrative of the origin of the various sections of parties, and concluded by saying there was another party in New York, known as Free Soilers, or Abolitionists. You've seen none of those in this part of the country, I presume, Mr. Northup remarked. Never but one, answered Waddill, laughingly. We have one here in Marksville, an eccentric creature, who preaches abolitionism as vehemently as any fanatic at the North. He's a generous, inoffensive man, but always maintaining the wrong side of an argument. It affords us a deal of amusement. He's an excellent mechanic and almost indispensable in this community. He's a carpenter. His name is Bass. Some further good-natured conversation was had at the expense of Bass's peculiarities when Wadil all at once fell into a reflective mood and asked for the mysterious letter again. Let me see. Let me see, he repeated thoughtfully to himself, running his eyes over the letter once more. Bayou Boeuf, August 15th. August 15th, postmarked here. He that is writing for me. Where did Bass work last summer? He inquired, turning suddenly to his brother. His brother was unable to inform him, but rising, left the office, and soon returned with the intelligence that Bass worked last summer somewhere on Bayou Boeuf. He's the man, bringing down his hand emphatically on the table, who can tell us all about Solomon Northup, exclaimed Wadil. Bass was immediately searched for, but could not be found. After some inquiry, it was ascertained he was at the landing on Red River, procuring a conveyance. Young Wadil and Northup were not long in traversing the few miles to that latter place. On their arrival, Bass was found just on the point of leaving to be absent a fortnight or more. After an introduction, Northup begged the privilege of speaking to him privately a moment. They walked together towards the river when the following conversation ensued. Mr. Bass, said Northup, allow me to ask you if you were on Bayou Boeuf last August. Yes, sir, I was there in August, was the reply. Did you write a letter for a colored man at that place to some gentleman in Saratoga Springs? "'Excuse me, sir, if I say that's none of your business,' answered Bass, stopping and looking his interrogator searchingly in the face. "'Perhaps I'm rather hasty, Mr. Bass. I beg your pardon. But I've come from the state of New York to accomplish the purpose the writer of the letter dated the 15th of August, postmarked at Marksville, had in view. Circumstances have led me to think that you're perhaps the man who wrote it. I'm in search of Solomon Northup. If you know him, 
I beg you to inform me frankly where he is, and I assure you the source of any information you may give me shall not be divulged, if you desire it not to be. A long time Bass looked his new acquaintance steadily in the eyes without opening his lips. He seemed to be doubting in his own mind if there was not an attempt to practice some deception upon him. Finally, he said, deliberately, I have done nothing to be ashamed of. I am the man who wrote the letter. If you have come to rescue Solomon Northup, I'm glad to see you. When did you last see him, and where is he? Northup inquired. I last saw him Christmas, a week ago today. He's the slave of Edwin Epps, a planter on Bayou Boeuf, near Holmesville. He's not known as Solomon Northup. He's called Platt. The secret was out. The mystery was unraveled. Through the thick black cloud, amid whose dark and dismal shadows I had walked twelve years, broke the star that was to light me back to liberty. All mistrust and hesitation were soon thrown aside, and the two men conversed long and freely upon the subject uppermost in their thoughts. Bass expressed the interest he'd taken in my behalf, his intention of going north in the spring, and declaring that he had resolved to accomplish my emancipation, if it were in his power. He described the commencement and progress of his acquaintance with me, and listened with eager curiosity to the account given him of my family and the history of my early life. Before separating, he drew a map of the bayou on a strip of paper with a piece of red chalk showing the locality of Epps' plantation and the road leading most directly to it. Northup and his young companion returned to Marksville, where it was determined to commence legal proceedings to test the question of my right of freedom. I was made plaintiff, Mr. Northup acting as my guardian, and Edward Epps' defendant. The process to be issued was in the nature of replevin, directed to the sheriff of the parish, commanding him to take me into custody and detain me until the decision of the court. By the time the papers were duly drawn up, it was twelve o'clock at night, too late to obtain the necessary signature of the judge, who resided some distance out of town. Further business was therefore suspended until Monday morning. Everything apparently was moving along swimmingly until Sunday afternoon, when Wadil called at Northup's room to express his apprehension of difficulties they had not expected to encounter. Bass had become alarmed, and had placed his affairs in the hands of a person at the landing, communicating to him his intention of leaving the state. This person had betrayed the confidence reposed in him to a certain extent, and a rumor began to float about the town that the stranger at the hotel, who'd been observed in the company of lawyer Wadil, was after one of old Epps's slaves over on the bayou. Epps was known at Marksville, having frequent occasion to visit that place during the session of the courts, and the fear entertained by Mr. Northup's adviser was that intelligence would be conveyed to him in the night, giving him an opportunity of secreting me before the arrival of the sheriff. This apprehension had the effect of expediting matters considerably. The sheriff, who lived in one direction from the village, was requested to hold himself in readiness immediately after midnight while the judge was informed he'd be called upon at the same time. It's but justice to say that the authorities at Marksville cheerfully rendered all the assistance in their power. As soon after midnight as bail could be perfected and the judge's signature obtained, a carriage containing Mr. Northup and the sheriff, driven by the landlord's son, rolled rapidly out of the village of Marksville on the road towards Bayou Boeuf. 
It was supposed that Epps would contest the issue involving my right to liberty, and it therefore suggested itself to Mr. Northup that the testimony of the sheriff, describing my first meeting with the former, might perhaps become material on the trial. It was accordingly arranged during the ride that before I had an opportunity of speaking to Mr. Northup, the sheriff should propound to me certain questions agreed upon, such as the number and names of my children, the name of my wife before marriage, of places I knew at the North, and so forth. If my answers corresponded with the statements given him, the evidence must necessarily be considered conclusive. At length, shortly after Epps had left the field, with the consoling assurance that he would soon return and warm us, as was stated in the conclusion of the preceding chapter, they came in sight of the plantation and discovered us at work. Alighting from the carriage and directing the driver to proceed to the great house, with instructions not to mention to anyone the object of their errand until they met again, Northup and the sheriff turned from the highway and came towards us across the cotton field. We observed them, on looking up at the carriage, one several rods in advance of the other. It was a singular and unusual thing to see white men approaching us in that manner, and especially at that early hour in the morning, and Uncle Abram and Patsy made some remarks, expressive of their astonishment. Walking up to Bob, the sheriff inquired, "'Where's the boy they call Platt?' "'There he is, Massa,' answered Bob, pointing to me and twitching off his hat. I wondered to myself what business he could possibly have with me, and turning round, gazed at him until he had approached within a step. During my long residence on the bayou, I had become familiar with the face of every planter within many miles, but this man was an utter stranger. Certainly I would never seen him before. "'Your name is Platt, is it?' he asked. "'Yes, master,' I responded. Pointing towards Northup, standing a few rods distant, he demanded, "'Do you know that man?' I looked in the direction indicated, and as my eyes rested on his countenance, a world of images thronged my brain, a multitude of well-known faces, Anne's and the dear children's and my old dead father's, all the scenes and associations of childhood and youth, all the friends of other and happier days, appeared and disappeared, flitting and floating like dissolving shadows before the vision of my imagination, until at last the perfect memory of the man recurred to me, and throwing up my hands towards heaven, I exclaimed in a voice louder than I could utter in a less exciting moment, Henry B. Northup, thank God, thank God. In an instant I comprehended the nature of his business and felt that the hour of my deliverance was at hand. I started towards him, but the sheriff stepped before me. Stop a moment, he said. Have you any other name than Platt? Solomon Northup is my name, master, I replied. Have you a family, he inquired. I had a wife and three children. What were your children's names? Elizabeth, Margaret, and Alonzo. And your wife's name before her marriage? Anne Hampton. Who married you? Timothy Eddy of Fort Edward. Where does that gentleman live? Again pointing to Northup, who remained standing in the same place where I had first recognized him. He lives in Sandy Hill, Washington County, New York, was the reply. He was proceeding to ask further questions, but I pushed past him, unable longer to restrain myself. I seized my old acquaintance by both hands. I couldn't speak. I could not refrain from tears. Sol, he said at length, 
I'm glad to see you. I essayed to make some answer, but emotion choked all utterance, and I was silent. The slaves, utterly confounded, stood gazing upon the scene, their mouths open and rolling eyes, indicating the utmost wonder and astonishment. For ten years I had dwelt among them, in the field and in the cabin, borne the same hardships, partaken the same fare, mingled my griefs with theirs, participated in the same scanty joys. Nevertheless, not until this hour, the last I was to remain among them, had the remotest suspicion of my true name, or the slightest knowledge of my real history, been entertained by any one of them. Not a word was spoken for several minutes, during which time I clung fast to Northup, looking up into his face, fearful I should awake and find it all a dream. Throw down that sack, Northup added, finally. Your cotton-picking days are over. Come with us to the man you live with. I obeyed him, and walking between him and the sheriff, we moved towards the great house. It was not until we had proceeded some distance that I had recovered my voice sufficiently to ask if my family were all living. He informed me he'd seen Anne, Margaret, and Elizabeth but a short time previously, that Alonzo was also living, and all were well. My mother, however, I could never see again. As I began to recover in some measure from the sudden and great excitement which so overwhelmed me, I grew faint and weak, insomuch it was with difficulty I could walk. The sheriff took hold of my arm and assisted me, or I think I should have fallen. As we entered the yard, Epps stood by the gate, conversing with the driver. That young man, faithful to his instructions, was entirely unable to give him the least information in answer to his repeated inquiries of what was going on. By the time we reached him, he was almost as much amazed and puzzled as Bob or Uncle Abram. Shaking hands with the sheriff and receiving an introduction to Mr. Northup, he invited them into the house, ordering me, at the same time, to bring in some wood. It was some time before I succeeded in cutting an armful, having somehow unaccountably lost the power of wielding the axe with any manner of precision. When I entered with it at last, the table was strewn with papers, from one of which Northup was reading. I was probably longer than necessity required in placing the sticks upon the fire, being particular as to the exact position of each individual one of them. I heard the words, The said Solomon Northup, and The deponent further says, and Free citizen of New York, repeated frequently, and from these expressions understood that the secret I had so long retained from Master and Mistress Epps was finally developing. I lingered as long as prudence permitted, and was about leaving the room when Epps inquired, Platt, do you know this gentleman? Yes, Master, I replied. I've known him as long as I can remember. Where does he live? He lives in New York. Did you ever live there? Yes, Master, born and bred there. You was free then. Now you damned nigger, he exclaimed. Why did you not tell me that when I bought you? Master Epps, I answered, in a somewhat different tone than the one in which I had been accustomed to address him. Master Epps, you did not take the trouble to ask me. Besides, I told one of my owners, the man that kidnapped me, that I was free and was whipped almost to death for it. It seemed there's been a letter written for you by somebody. Now who is it? he demanded, authoritatively. I made no reply. I say, who wrote that letter? he demanded again. 
Perhaps I wrote it myself, I said. You haven't been to Marksville post office and back before light, I know. He insisted upon my informing him, and I insisted I would not. He made many vehement threats against the man, whoever he might be, and intimated the bloody and savage vengeance he would wreak upon him when he found him out. His whole manner and language exhibited a feeling of anger towards the unknown person who'd written for me, and of fretfulness at the idea of losing so much property. Addressing Mr. Northup, he swore if he'd only had an hour's notice of his coming, he would have saved him the trouble of taking me back to New York. They would have run me into the swamp or some other place out of the way where all the sheriffs on earth couldn't have found me. I walked out into the yard and was entering the kitchen door when something struck me in the back. Aunt Phoebe, emerging from the back door of the great house with a pan of potatoes, had thrown one of them with unnecessary violence, thereby giving me to understand that she wished to speak to me a moment confidentially. Running up to me, she whispered in my ear with great earnestness, Lord Marty Platt, what do you think? Them two men come after you. Heard them tell Massa you free. Got wife and three children back there where you come from. Going with them. Fool if you don't. Wish I could go. And Aunt Phoebe ran on in this manner at a rapid pace. Presently, Mistress Epps made her appearance in the kitchen. She said many things to me and wondered why I had not told her who I was. She expressed her regret, complimenting me by saying she had rather lose any other servant on the plantation. Had Patsy that day stood in my place, the measure of my mistress' joy would have overflowed. Now there was no one left who could mend a chair or a piece of furniture, no one who was of any use about the house, no one who could play for her on the violin, and Mistress Epps was actually affected to tears. Epps had called to Bob to bring up his saddle horse. The other slaves, also overcoming their fear of the penalty, had left their work and come to the yard. They were standing behind the cabins, out of sight of Epps. They beckoned me to come to them, and with all the eagerness of curiosity, excited to the highest pitch, conversed with and questioned me. If I could repeat the exact words they uttered with the same emphasis, if I could paint their several attitudes and the expression of their countenances, it would be indeed an interesting picture. In their estimation, I had suddenly arisen to an immeasurable height, had become a being of immense importance. The legal papers having been served and arrangements made with Epps to meet them the next day at Marksville, Northup and the sheriff entered the carriage to return to the latter place. As I was about mounting to the driver's seat, the sheriff said I ought to bid Mr. and Mrs. Epps goodbye. I ran back to the piazza where they were standing, and taking off my hat, said, Goodbye, Mrs. Goodbye, Platt, said Mrs. Epps kindly. Goodbye, Master. Ah, you damn nigger, muttered Epps in a surly, malicious tone of voice. You needn't feel so cussed tickled. You ain't gone yet. I'll see about this business at Marksville tomorrow. I was only a nigger and knew my place but felt as strongly as if I'd been a white man that it would have been an inward comfort had I dared to have given him a parting kick. On my way back to the carriage, Patsy ran from behind the cabin and threw her arms about my neck. Oh, Platt, she cried, tears streaming down her face. You're going to be free. You're going way off yonder where we'll never see you any more. You've saved me a good many whippings, Platt. I'm glad you're going to be free. But, oh, de Lord, de Lord, what'll become of me? 
I disengaged myself from her and entered the carriage. The driver cracked his whip, and away we rolled. I looked back and saw Patsy, with drooping head, half reclining on the ground. Mrs. Epps was on the piazza. Uncle Abram and Bob and Wiley and Aunt Phoebe stood by the gate, gazing after me. I waved my hand, but the carriage turned a bend of the bayou, hiding them from my eyes forever. We stopped a moment at Carrie's sugar house, where a great number of slaves were at work, such an establishment being a curiosity to the northern men. Epps dashed by us on horseback at full speed, on the way, as we learned next day, to the Pine Woods to see William Ford, who'd brought me into the country. Tuesday, the 4th of January, Epps and his counsel, the Honorable H. Taylor, Northup, Wadil, the judge and sheriff of Avoyel, and myself, met in a room in the village of Marksville. Mr. Northup stated the facts in regard to me and presented his commission and the affidavits accompanying it. The sheriff described the scene in the cotton field. I was also interrogated at great length. Finally, Mr. Taylor assured his client that he was satisfied and that litigation would not only be expensive but utterly useless. In accordance with his advice, a paper was drawn up and signed by the proper parties, wherein Epps acknowledged he was satisfied of my right to freedom and formally surrendered me to the authorities of New York. It was also stipulated that it be entered of record in the recorder's office of Avoyel. Mr. Northup and myself immediately hastened to the landing, and taking passage on the first steamer that arrived, were soon floating down Red River, up which, with such desponding thoughts, I had been born twelve years before.